0: Welcome back to another StockFlare podcast, and I'm really excited to have back on the show um, Edgar Sr., who explained to us the world of ETFs. And welcome back, Edgar. Thank you very much, Shane. Great to be back. And on on that last podcast we did together, we were talking about ETFs and robo-advisors and how that industry has become an exciting, really great place for investors to get high-quality, low-cost, really liquid, sensible products. But you mentioned something that was really, really intriguing, a thing called Smart Beta. And it's not something that I think many people have ever really heard about. And afterwards, you tell me you're writing a book about this. So I'd love for you to uh, tell us why you're writing a book about this new world of Smart Beta and also explain us what actually it is.
1: Uh, I would love to. Uh, Well, smart beta is both very new and very old simultaneously, which sounds impossible, but I'll I'll explain how that's possible. Um, and, And interestingly, the single most looked up term on Investopedia in 2015 was smart beta. So this is starting to become a buzzword. And even mainstream publications like the Financial Times or The Economist are starting to write articles about smart beta now. So it has gone in just the last three or four years, really. It has jumped from being a quite esoteric niche product into something that more and more people are talking about. And I think anybody who looks at passive investing or using indices like the S&P or the FTSE are probably aware that smart beta is out there, and they're hearing more about it. Uh, The reason I'm writing a book about it, uh, in my last job, I was the head of product development for an ETF issuer in Europe called Source, and they're Europe's largest independent uh, ETF issuer with about $20 billion of assets and the 10 or 12 products that I launched while I was there were very much um, focused on this smart beta world. Okay. So, it's so you're one of the
0: pioneers of smart beta in Europe.
1: I'm not sure I can claim to be a pioneer, but uh, certainly source is at the forefront of working with all of the developers of smart beta. Uh, and so we saw a lot of what's happening. Uh, I believe, really believe hugely in the value of these products, but there's also a huge amount of confusion
0: so that's the reason for writing a book. Is there is there no good book out there today on this product?
1: Because there's a lot of
0: people who love writing finance books.
1: So we'll talk in a second about the origins of smart beta, and they actually come out of academic literature and studies going back about 40 or 50 years. And one thing that... I wanted to kind of comment is that there are, of course, books out there, but they're very academic. Okay. So if you're a kind of a quanti-academic person, there certainly is a lot for you to read. In fact, I have downloaded 450 academic research documents that I'm I'm pouring through at the moment. So there's an incredible amount of material out there. But what there is not is a practical guide to how to use smart beta inside your portfolio to achieve your investment objectives. Okay. And that's the angle that I'm trying to pursue. The layman's
0: guide to Smart Beta. What it is, how to use it.
1: Practical orientation. Okay.
0: Okay. Well, hopefully you can give us a a teaser of what this is.
1: Absolutely. So,
0: let's start at the beginning. Smart Beta, what is it?
1: What is it? So, uh, before defining it, unfortunately, we actually need to agree on what to call it. Because one of the challenges, and in fact, this is one of the reasons I think holding back investors... Is that it is called approximately fifteen different names? Okay, so, so
0: there's no this is a catch-all of fifteen different things. There's a real
1: mess out there. So um, you may hear it called um, alternative beta. You may hear it called strategic beta. You may hear it called enhanced beta. <laughs> you may hear it called beta plus. Oh okay. no. Um, but actually, what's happened over the last 18 months, Smart Beta has won the war. Okay. And I wrote an article just last week, and it was the lead article on ETF.com, which is probably the, the, the best source of Great. information on ETFs. And it was entitled, Smart Beta has won the war. Okay. Um, and uh, what really happened is iShares, who's by far the largest ETF provider in the world, they finally stopped calling it Strategic Beta about a year ago. Okay. And so there are still a few holdouts But really, smart beta is now the phrase. It's in their interest
0: to call it the same thing.
1: Uh, Well, you know, I think people like to differentiate themselves. And and I think people like to be a little bit purist. And they say that the word smart has got no place in defining a financial product. And I would agree, by the way. So although I think we should stop arguing and we should just call it smart beta, that doesn't mean I like the phrase. And in fact, both the word smart suggests that anything else is dumb, which is wrong. The S&P 500 is not dumb. It's a great product. Um, and the word beta is, is a tiny bit misleading because a lot of smart beta products are attempting to outperform the market. So that's, they're, not, they're not beta, and that's they're what not the market. And we refer to that traditionally as alpha. So yeah. if it's got a bit of alpha and a bit of beta, why are we calling it smart beta? So I think the name is not a great name, but the market has adopted it. It's the consensus. Let's stop arguing and instead let's talk about what it means. And okay. so, and that was the question you asked. So let's try and define it and again the problem is that there's a lot of different definitions out there and if you go and look on the websites of 10 ETF issuers or 10 index providers you will find very very different definitions and the problem is that each of them is a little bit self-serving in the way they define it they tend to define it in a way that suits the product they happen to have so as an example some people tend to be unhelpfully precise We're going to talk in a minute about Research Affiliates, a very interesting uh, investing and research company based in California. And they can certainly lay claim to being one of the founding fathers of Smart Beta. This is Rob Arnott. Rob Arnott. And they have products dating back to 2005. So they've got more than a 10 year track record, which is, so it definitely makes them one of the pioneers. Uh, But they define Smart Beta uh, that it has to be very high capacity, it has to be very high turnover, low tracking error. Uh, and it has to have zero relation to the price of the stock. And the, the weighting of the stock cannot take the price of the stock into account. Now, conveniently, that's exactly what their products do. But in <laughs> fact, there's a very wide range of other products out there that are perfectly good, very useful products that definitely are considered smart beta that don't meet their requirements. Similarly, there's some funds out there, some issuers, who are very focused on factors. Now, we're going to talk about factors, otherwise known as risk premia, in a minute. Um, and so if a company has got five factor products and that's all they have, then they're going to define smart beta as meaning the same thing as factor investing. Okay. But And, and it's true that factors are a huge part of what smart beta are, but they are not synonymous. And, and so just, I just you know, advise readers to be wary. You will hear differing definitions of smart beta. Most of the time, just be aware, it's a self-serving definition that suits the products that guy happens to be selling you that day. So I'd step back and, and and here's here's a much similar definition. Okay. Start with a broad index like the S and P or the FTSE. Okay. And then modify either the screening of the stocks. Okay. And or the weighting of the stocks. Yep. In order to achieve a specific investment objective. Okay. Boom. So, that's smart beta.
0: So so on your on our previous podcast when you mentioned smart beta, you gave the example of taking the S and P five hundred and saying I only want high dividend yielding stocks. So it's where you're screening this and you're saying I want to take all of the supercharged dividend income out of the S&P and that's sort of a a very basic way that somebody takes an index, an ETF, and they funnel it into a smart beta style strategy.
1: Absolutely right and and, and, and dividend focused uh, ETFs, I should say, are by far the largest part of the smart beta world. Oh, they are. Let's talk about numbers actually. So Smart Beta, and again, because we have different definitions, different providers will give you very different estimates. But Morningstar, although they refuse to call it Smart Beta, for them it's Strategic Beta, but they have done definitely the best work, the best studies here. And they estimate there's approximately $500 billion of Smart Beta ETFs across approximately 800 different ETFs. And that's just inside ETFs. Now, if I look at somebody like Research Affiliates, Research Affiliates claims to have $110 billion of assets indexed to their Smart Beta strategies, okay. only about 10 or 15 of which is in ETFs.
0: So the ETF part of Smart Beta it may, is, is it the may tip be, of the iceberg. It
1: may be the tip of the iceberg, but the problem is that many of these assets are not very disclosed. So they, for example, sit inside separate accounts, uh, which a lot of the large pension funds use to explore indices. A lot of this is not very obvious, uh, but I would say it's a conservative estimate to say that there's at least as much again in non-ETF formats, across mutual okay. funds, separate accounts, derivatives, swaps. So I think saying that there's a trillion dollars today of Smart Beta is conservative. There's probably a lot more.
0: So the the we talked in our last podcast about how ETFs have gone from zero to uh, three, $3 trillion. trillion. Within that, Smart Beta ETFs is a very large and growing section. It
1: is one in six dollars in ETFs. Wow. So 500 billion out of 3 trillion, one-sixth, are in smart beta ETFs of some shape or variety today. And that share is increasing over time. So as, as fast as ETFs are growing, smart beta is growing more quickly. Uh, and so, you know, in my book, I talk about an estimate that it's very easy to see smart be- smart beta broadly being two and a half trillion dollars by 2020. That is not a crazy estimate at all. So this is this is already huge. And let's be clear, 500 billion in ETFs is not niche. This is huge already. It's not niche. It, uh, is, <laughs> it is huge already. It is well accepted. It is well understood. And, and, and the dividend strategy you brought up is just a very nice example to illustrate because we have all been buying dividend-focused equity funds for all of our lives. Yeah. Every investor cares about income, and most of us have done that. Now, in the past, the only option open to us, say, five years ago, was to go and buy an active product. Yeah, And it was probably quite a simple active product, so the fees weren't too bad. Maybe it was 1% to 1.5%, including your distribution fee, paid to some dis- distributor for you to get into that. You can now buy this product... On any index in the world, if you want to extract dividends from the U.S. or the U.K. or Europe or emerging markets or China, that exists, and you will pay—you pay more than a very simple ETF. So simple ETFs these days, core S and P five hundred, are between ten and twenty basis points. Yeah. You can probably expect to pay in the range of twenty to thirty-five basis points for smart beta ETFs.
0: But this is still a fraction of what you would pay if you went to a mutual fund. Absolutely, An absolute fraction.
1: And you are getting a lot of those same benefits. And so this is, again, we talked about why ETFs have been so so successful. And we talked about uh, low fees, transparency, predictability. um, Liquidity. uh, Liquidity. liquidity, Smart ETFs benefit from absolutely all of those things. And although the prices are indeed slightly higher, you're not talking about going anywhere near the cost of actively managed strategies. So
0: so in the same way in our last podcast, we talked about robo-advisors or digital advice. Being a little bit, you know, a little bit expensive, or sorry, not having a cost above the ETFs, it's worthwhile for certain reasons to get the diversification, to get the continual rebalancing. So there's a reason to have smart beta funds and ETFs in your portfolio. It's to get that incremental. Uh, you're paying a little bit more for a slightly better product
1: potentially. Well. The word, instead of the word better let's just say better suited to your you, investment yeah. objectives yeah. if, if you, that's your opinion. if you at the moment want to extract income from the equity markets what are your options one you can go and do a lot of research on an amazing website like StockFlare <laughs> and, you can, <laughs> and you can go and buy a lot of high dividend stocks but yeah. that takes research and it yeah. takes monitoring and it takes management yeah. and by the way the trading costs might be quite expensive yeah. as well yeah. That remember that's not free because you're buying a lot of individual stocks and, yeah. may, and if you're buying small lots yeah. then the, the price is potentially even more expensive you know as a percentage of of what you pay Uh, or the other alternative that you had was you go to the mutual fund so um, you know Neil Woodford for example uh, you know he's very focused on extracting income from equities yeah and so this is a new thing that sits in between and and that's why I think it's 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 reasonable to say it sits somewhere in between you know passive and, and active I find that a little bit of a confusing definition though because I want to be clear there is no element of active management inside smart beta there is no human being at any point who intervenes and says, buy that stock, sell that stock. So it's 100% rules-based. And to me, passive and rules-based mean more or less the same thing. So I, I think we need to be a little bit careful about throwing around so words like active. It's almost
0: passive strategies. Are. it's driven, But, but it's, it's, not, it's not following the S&P. A, a human... Has written an algorithm and rules and said this is the rules the computer must follow them. Correct
1: and you are also making an active decision that when you buy that you are tilting towards high income stocks or you are tilting towards high uh, low volatility stocks so again there's a level of activity or the word active is relevant you know you are making an active Active decision decision. to tilt away from the market cap and so for people who believe in this efficient market hypothesis They say, hey, you're making a very active decision there, my friend. And that's completely true. But the same thing is true when you buy or sell a stock.
0: True, true. Okay, within this, you mentioned earlier another, uh, um, a confusion that appears in this, which is what is referred to as factors or factor investing. So can you give us a little bit of insight as to, is this actually a confusion? Is this a conflicting uh, concept? Or is it just uh, a sub-segment of the world of smart media?
1: That's right. So many people use the phrase factor investing as synonymous with smart beta. And they have a huge amount in common, but I I would very much argue that they are not the same thing. Now, first of all, what is a factor? It sounds like a simple word and you realize what on earth does it mean in this context? So a factor, and I'll define it simply, it is a common characteristic that a, a group of securities have in common with each other that explains a meaningful amount of their risk or their returns. Ah,
0: their risk or their returns. Okay. Yeah. So
1: the classic factor examples are value, yeah. quality, yeah. size, yeah. momentum, yeah. low, low volatility, yield yeah. is one of them. Absolutely. So these are what people call factors. And um, so factor analysis, because stretches back in academia... Uh, to the 1950s and 60s. And in fact, the capital asset pricing model, which is the kind of the heart of modern financial theory, um, that was the first factor model in a way. But they argue there's one factor. That factor is market risk, beta. You have to understand every stock in terms of its beta. The additional risks are diversifiable away, so you don't get compensated for them. You only get compensated for the risk of the stock, the systematic risk, the beta. So do you have a low beta stock or a high beta stock? Does it move more or less than the market moves? That was a one-factor model. And then the research started continuing, and they found, unfortunately, this wonderful theory that so much is based on turned out to be empirically incorrect. Oh, no. It was completely not helpful. It turned out that when they measured uh, through extensive studies... That CAPM was not correct. That, that beta did not tell you the returns you were going to get on stocks and portfolios and markets.
0: It was very backward looking.
1: And so, that, well, it was worse. It just didn't work at all. Yeah. So it was a theory that turned out not to be very accurate. It's very, very useful as a theoretical underpinning and, and, and as a construct. It's a very useful concept. And it's still taught in every business school and every finance course. Yeah. But it is not accurate. So they started to say, hang on, there's other things that explain the risk and return of stocks. And that's what factors are. And so uh, we then we move on from CAPM m in the, I think, early 60s, and all of a sudden by the early 90s, and remember as well, technology and data are increasing yes. hugely. So you can crunch numbers and you can analyze things that you couldn't do back in the 60s. Um, and there's a very famous development uh, by two professors called Fama and French. And so it's called the Fama-French three-factor model. They took the original one, which is market risk or beta, and they said there's two other things that also explain the returns of stocks. And they are, on the one hand, value, and on the other hand, they are size. Let me put those into normal English for you. They found out that cheap stocks tend to outperform. Now, this sounds like a blinding glimpse of the obvious. Of course, if you buy a stock that is quote-unquote cheap, Cheap. and we define cheap here either by having a low book to price compared to its peer group, or a low price earnings compared to its peer group. So it seems kind of obvious that if you can find something that's cheap relative to its peer group or relative to its own intrinsic fair value, that it will outperform. But in fact, this was a total contradiction of the original model, which said the only thing that mattered was beta. Was the market. And it turns out it's not. Value explains returns. And so what that means is that if you can tilt your portfolio towards value, you will potentially outperform the broad market. So, and I assume
0: there's smart beta funds that do
1: that? Absolutely. And in fact, they started, interestingly, not of smart beta funds, they started as what people call style. And it's worth talking about the word style. Morningstar famously created the style box. And if you can picture it, it's that little kind of 3 by 3 grid, and it has value blend growth across the top, yeah. and it has large cap, mid cap, small cap, I think, down, down the side. And interestingly, it was the same year the Fama French launched their paper in 92 or 93 that Morningstar launched the style box. Styles are quite similar. They have a lot in common with factors because you've got value, you've got growth, you've got small cap, but they're used for a completely different purpose. But sometimes people confuse the two and it's just worth remembering that they're quite different things, but they use similar language like value and growth. So so factors started to be acknowledged as explanatory of additional returns beyond what you would expect from just looking at the beta of a stock. And as I say, value and small size. So they call low size. Basically, very simple. They say the small caps tend to outperform large caps over a period of time. And a huge amount of study has been done. And it shows it mostly in the U.S. It's actually more reliable in the U.S. Uh, in, other, in other countries, it's been a little bit more periodic. Um, and the academics explain this, I should say. Because you know the academics needed to find an explanation. And the explanation for those two was a risk premium. You are being compensated as an investor for taking on greater exposure to value companies because if they're value, maybe they are cheap for a reason. Ah. Maybe they have greater financial distress risk. Mm -hmm. So there's theories as to why you are paid more for owning these companies. And the same thing, small companies tend to be less liquid, less well-covered, Uh, and potentially more volatile so again it might grow faster
0: because they're not the biggest guy in the market
1: but it and and it turns out that they do it turns out that they they outperform over time Uh, and so so they they were the first two famous factors Uh, the more recent fama french model it's become a five factor model (laughs) and they added on two new factors which are both aspects of quality so i don't really i actually think of it as just adding one more uh, and then AQR, Cliff Asmus came out with a wonderful paper called Hours Goes to Six, and he's added in momentum as well. Now momentum is interesting, so the momentum again it's a word we use but let's think about what it means in the context of investing it simply means that a stock that went up over the last period is more likely to go up today than a stock which has gone down over the last period. That That's it. What what goes What is going up will continue to go up on average. Now Um, momentum is different. That's not a risk premium because that's not based on a fundamental analysis of the company. It's based on analyzing prices. And so that offends these academics even more. But it turns out...
0: It's it's almost a reflection in sentiment. So if you're... Momentum is a sentiment indicator. So he's bringing... So the the second version of Fama and French brought in quality and then this... Now we go to six, is bringing in almost technical analysis and sentiment. Because That's right. The two, for me, it's you know, stocks and everything. It's, it's, it's pretty easy. Fundamentals and sentiment drive everything. Long term, it's the fundamentals. Is it going to be a better business? And in the short term, it's do people like it or not like it? So you, you know, I, I personally love this idea that you mentioned of buying you know, small cap and value because you're buying companies that should grow fast and are cheap, so you've got a double whammy upside. It might go from being cheap to being fair value or expensive, and it might grow faster. So I can see from a thinking about stock and the way that I like to pick stocks, I can see why Smart Beta uh, has great value in a broader perspective when you're building a broad portfolio.
1: That's right, and, and so I, I think the thing about factors is there's a ton of academic research, and that's why I say that Smart Beta is both old and new. This academic research goes back 40 or 50 years, Uh, Yet, delivering it to you as an investor in this very cheap, easy, simple product called a Smart Beta ETF has only really... It started 10 years ago and it's only taken off in the last five years. So that's why we can say that it's new, but it's building on something that is old and phenomenally well understood. And so these factors are essentially the result of academic research asking the question, how can we outperform the market? What a Smart Beta ETF does for you is it takes that research and it says, If you believe in that factor or that factor or that factor, we can help you to tilt your portfolio towards that factor and benefit from it. So if you believe that quality companies, and quality is typically defined as high profitability and low risk balance sheets, if you believe that that is a sensible portfolio to hold because you're afraid a recession may be coming... In other words, I don't want to own growth stocks anymore if I'm afraid of a recession, but high quality companies with high profit margins with conservative balance sheets, they're much more likely to weather a downturn, you can buy an ETF and tilt towards that. So at the moment, if 50% of your portfolio is in the S&P 500 and you decide you want to tilt towards the quality companies in the S&P 500, you go and you sell 25% of that portfolio and you simply switch straight into the quality-filtered S&P 500 and you've maintained your exposure to equities, you've maintained yeah. your exposure yeah. to the American market, yeah. potentially you can do this on an industry-neutral basis, that exists as well, yeah. but you have just you know, essentially replaced half of your portfolio with quality companies in a single click. Wow! And that's what Smart SmartPita does for you. It allows you to take advantage of all this academic research, tilt your portfolio, uh, take advantage of these factors that have produced outperformance. performance. That's one objective. And the second is to implement a view such as market timing in a way more precise way than you could have. And so I often describe Smart Beta. It's it's about creating a much broader set of much more precise tools for you to shape your portfolio.
0: Okay. Okay. So it's a really good way to, to shape the portfolio based on your view the way that you want to, uh, you're 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 juicing your portfolio. You're not going to just go for a simple S and P five hundred. You're being much more specific. Well, what you're trying to get
1: and when you use the word juicing, juicing obviously is referring much more to returns. And there's no doubt, but that outperformance is one of the key objectives people seek from Smart Beta, but it is not the only one. And in fact, reduction in risk and increase in diversification are at least as important, I would truth, say. True, uh, not losing money. It might, it
0: might help you reduce the risk of losing money. So you might actually get exactly the same return... But we're at a much lower risk.
1: And the example of that is year to date, one of the most successful types of smart beta in terms of raising money from investors. So investors voting with their feet. They've been putting money into what are called low volatility ETFs. And this, again, is a phenomenally simple product. You know, smart beta does not have to be complex. Uh, it takes the S&P 500. It ranks them in terms of their realized volatility over the last 12 months. The volatility, just the standard deviation, how much each stock you know moves around day to day. And then you take the 100 that have had the lowest amount of volatility, and that's your new portfolio. Okay. okay. Um, and so, and historically, it has been shown with 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 great um, predictive power that the lowest volatility stocks of the last 12 months did turn out to have less risk in the period that follows as well. So that there's predictive power in in looking backwards, um, and. Even, they were
0: boring last year, they're boring this year. And a, if, and a lot of investors like that. Yeah, boring is good. Boring is good when it comes to if losing that's, money. If, I prefer to not.
1: If that's your view, again, and that's the beauty, each investor, you know, you can decide what you want to tilt your portfolio towards, and a smart beta product exists. To help you to do that, if you want to go low risk,
0: well, let's let's talk about some of these these smart beta products that are out there. Now, you don't need to plug any particular uh, firm, uh, but uh, let's let's talk about some of the pioneers yes. uh, of this industry. Can you? We, we mentioned a firm called Research Affiliates before. Can, they've been around for ten years. That's right. Okay. So what 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 is you know if you were to look at this as a firm, what what are the you know the key attributes of the firm of the products that they sell and why have they been so successful? as a firm, uh, you know, what's so successful and attractive about their products?
1: So Research Affiliates is a very interesting company. They were launched in about 2005 in California by a gentleman named Rob Arnott, who already was a very well-known researcher and asset manager, in fact. And they, they do asset management, but really what they do is research and creating indices and mostly smart beta indices. And as I say, they have products that now have a 10-year track record. So that does make them one of the founding fathers of, of this modern market. Um, they have $110 billion of assets that are indexed to their strategies. So that may make them also not just the first, but potentially the largest as well.
0: So they might be the vanguard of smart beta.
1: Indeed, indeed. And the majority of those assets are, they have a number of strategies, but the vast majority is in what they call the fundamental index. And at one point they had a trademark on that, but I don't think they do anymore. So I think the rest of us are allowed to use the phrase. And a fundamental index, uh, and I really like these products. So if you look at a product like the S&P 500 or anything else, the weighting of each stock is driven by market capitalization.
0: Okay. Bigger companies get the bigger weighting. Not Absolutely. necessarily the better
1: companies. And And big is defined as the price per share times the number of shares in the market. So that's market capitalization. And so you end up with an incredibly, incredibly skewed index. And especially, if you look at the S&P 500, the ratio between the largest stock, which I believe is Apple, yep. and the smallest stock, which is a company I've personally never heard of, the ratio between them is several hundred times. Wow. So you've got got one thing that's a couple of They're both
0: in the S&P 500, but one is 100 times more important.
1: Um, And and that's not necessarily a problem. Um, But Rob Arnott's observation was that the problem is that as stocks become more and more overvalued, you take on a more and more, uh, a, a larger and larger part of your portfolio becomes exposed to them. And so, Hang on, so that sounds a little bit like the opposite of the classic investing advice. The classic investing advice is buy low, sell high. So instead, the, the index is forcing you to
0: buy more of what's gone high.
1: Absolutely. And so let's just look back at, for example, the dot-com boom. When you know companies with no revenues were being valued on the basis of you know eyeballs and clicks per page and all this kind of stuff, and so you had some some tiny tiny companies representing one or two percent of an index larger than other companies, but actually were huge companies with thousands of employees and big earnings and dividends and so and rob said hang on that's just not a, that's not a sensible way to build an index so but let's see what is it we want out of an index right we want something that is Very simple. Okay, true. So simple is important. Transparent is important. Easy to understand. Understandable is important. High capacity is important. What do you mean by high capacity? High capacity means that it can accept a lot of investors' money without impacting the market too much. So it can't trade too much. You don't want to have way too much turnover. This is not an active strategy. It's supposed to look and feel like an index. So you want to have all of the benefits of an index that we've talked about, and low cost is one of them as well. Uh, including low trading costs so low turnover you're not you're not punting stocks in and out every day to rebalance this thing but on the other hand you want to avoid that that fatal flaw of classic market cap indices which is that you're basically following the market into every bubble yes and, and you're following the market as well into every depression when they kind of when the market loses its mind and it sells banks in 2009 well below their fair value well below even even a conservative book value number, And you think, hang on, why, at at the all-time low price of banks, why am I following the market down and I'm underweighting, undervalued stocks? And so that was his observation, that, that classic indices are irrational because investors are irrational and classic indices follow investors. They follow the market. So he said, let's break the link with price, but we still want to maintain a link with the size of the company. So he created this concept of a fundamental index, where you have pretty much all of the same stocks. It's not trying to get smart and pick stocks. It's saying, let's not allow ourselves to weight stocks just based on what's popular or what's kind of gone out of vogue. Let's look at the fundamental economic weight of the company. So we'll look at things like, we'll look at the book value, we'll look at the sales, we'll look at the earnings, we can look at, uh, employees, although he doesn't use that. You can look at dividends paid. Let's try and estimate what is the true size of this company? What percentage of the, economic, of the, of the economy is represented by that company? That should be the weight in the portfolio, not because the market has suddenly you know, valued a company at a hundred times earnings.
0: So the reason we don't have a, sort of a standard smart beta portfolio is that different people will have a different way of calculating the fundamental allocation for the S&P 500. The S&P 500 is just simple, it's market cap. But if you have two different equity funds, you know, or ETFs, which are Smart Beta USA, uh, you'll you have Rob will be calculating the weighting in one way and somebody else will calculate it in a different way. So they will actually be slightly different products even if they're saying they're doing
1: the same oh, thing. in fact, potentially totally different. Property. Totally different. Box. So, I say, so Rob's specific product—that's the fundamental index. Yeah. And and actually, maybe we even step back and let's say let, let's try and, and categorize this smart beta world actually. Yeah. So we talk about 500 billion dollars across maybe 800 ETFs. Yeah, it's a but lot. A lot of different attempts to categorize them. My, my 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 personal preference would be to break them up into three categories. Okay. One are factor-based products. We've already talked about factors at length. And factor products cover uh, a wide range of things. We talked about there's three or four of the fundamental factors. There's three or four of the technical factors. And then there are what are called multi-factor strategies, which is the latest big thing. And this is booming at the moment because they do the job of combining the factors for you into a single portfolio. I think they're wonderful products. Uh, Huge, huge explosion, proliferation of products. Tough to sort through, but really good, useful, interesting products. Um, so that's factors category yeah. one. Category two are risk based products. Okay. And these are products that are really about taking into account volatilities and or correlations of the stocks. And they're looking to either build a lower risk portfolio or sometimes just a more diversified portfolio. And that's a huge, huge world. And there's a lot of different types in there. So you've got low vol, minimum variance, risk parity, maximum diversification. There's a a lot of stuff going on in there, but ultimately they're reducing your risk. Yes. That's category two. And then category three is a little bit of a catch-all, but it's what I would refer to as alternatively weighted. And inside alternatively weighted, you have two or three main categories. The first is the simplest thing you can do in smart beta. It's called equal weighted. Yeah. This is so simple that I don't even need to explain what it does. Yeah. It's just yeah. equal weighted. You yeah. take all yeah. the stocks in the SP 500, yeah. they each get 0.2%, yeah. you rebalance every six months, You're that's done. your product. Easy. Now, that's simple. I must say the consequences of that weighting scheme are actually quite complex to understand. You're making lots of implicit views and bets there. And so funnily enough, equal weight strategies are not as simple as they first look. We could talk about that just for an hour. Easy for
0: a computer to do, not necessarily easy to understand.
1: I think they are perhaps uh, overly, they're oversimplified in their sales. And in fact, investors buy these expecting something very, very simple. You end up with something that is a little bit complex. But So that's in my third category. And then fundamental indices. And that's what Rob Arnott does. Now, some people say that a fundamental index is a value strategy in drag. Yeah. And that it should belong in the first category of factors. So in factors, we had our value strategies. Um, And I think that's a reasonable criticism uh, because what happens in Rob's strategy right, is if you're continually selling the things that have gone up to rebalance them to their fundamental economic weight. And similarly, when something drops relative to its economic weight, you have to buy it back to get it back to its economic weight. What you're doing is you are creating a value tilt against the rest of the market. market yeah. So when a dot-com stock suddenly triples in one day, he does not triple his weight because he looks at the underlying revenue. And it's not changed. And he said that company is the same today as it was yesterday. The fact that the market has become insanely bullish on it does not change how much I should hold. But because he did hold that stock, he has to sell to get back to his target weight. So if you're selling things that are overvalued and buying things that are undervalued, then you are going to end up with a value tilt. But that is not the only place that he creates uh, excess returns. And it turns out that even during periods when value had a negative contribution to a portfolio, he was still making positive money for investors. Wow. So while it's accurate that there's a big value element to his strategy, it is not just a value strategy. There's more going on there. And, and I think this comes back to just a very important point. All smart beta products, the most important question to ask as an investor is, what are the investment objectives? This particular product, and even this version of this product, uh, what is it going to help me to achieve? Yeah.
0: What am I trying to achieve?
1: Forget about the name. Forget about it, you know. It's something is called a low vol product. Something is called uh, an equal weighted product. What is this going to achieve? What? How is it going to behave in different markets? What is it going to do for my portfolio? And does that line up with my views and what I want to achieve? Yeah. Uh, and, and 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 I feel that there's so much confusion and there's so, so ugly jargon and terminology that people sometimes get confused or they get bogged down in incredibly complicated rules understanding the difference between risk parity and minimum variance but you've got to step back and ask what am i looking to achieve and does this product do that
0: and this is why we need a layman's book for this uh, area so i am uh, really looking forward to seeing it when it's in print now before we uh wrap up is there actually a, um, a view out there? Is, 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 is the market now wholly embracing this or is the jury out? Is there, is, there, is there a group of people out there who rubbish the idea of smart beta and do they, is there actually any reason that they give that's actually valid?
1: So um, the the answer is that certainly there are critics out there. Uh, one group of those critics fall into the group of people who are such defenders of this efficient market hypothesis we talk about that they hate the idea that there could potentially be sustainable excess returns over the market return. Um, and you know there are books and books and books written about this. Jack Bogle is of that view. Uh, Burton Malkiel, who wrote the famous book A Random Walk Down Wall Street, which is a wonderful book that I fully recommend. He has added a chapter in Smart Beta into the latest edition of his book, which came out just last year. This book is on its 11th edition over 40 years. Smart Beta now deserves a chapter, and he concludes uh, that there is no statistically significant proof that these things work but i just want to kind of say that they say that about every single active strategy these guys would tell you that anyone who ever buys or sells an individual stock is a fool they would tell you that anyone who ever buys an active mutual fund or a hedge fund is a fool for them the only thing you can do is buy the entire global stock market uh, market cap-weighted. Anything else is a waste of time and money. So those guys are... They have an almost religious view okay. that you cannot outperform the market. So that's why I, I I hate to say I wouldn't take their criticisms way too seriously. I think be
0: just being too purist.
1: They're very, very purist. They don't like anything that contradicts this idea of a perfectly efficient market. Whereas we've all seen what happened in you know, the dot-com in crisis, boom. In any crisis, well, in, in any boom and any bust. In bubbles, is, bubbles, uh, manias, yeah. crisis, depressions, we see the markets are clearly not efficient. When the exact same company goes up or down by 50% in a week, it's very obvious that the price either last week or this week is wrong. Yes. So the concept of noisy prices is now really replacing the concept of efficient markets. Now, noisy... What that means is that there is a fair value for the company, but that the stock will go up and down, almost like a pendulum swinging around, it's noisy. At some points, it might be perfectly accurate, but most of the time, it'll be a little bit too high or a little bit too low, and and Smart Beta tries to reflect that. Now, there's a second layer of criticism, which I think is more valid, right? And this says that investors are probably being hoodwinked into uh, oversimplifying how easy it is to outperform using smart beta. And I think this is a very fair criticism. So when you actually look at the academic results, um, although it's very, very powerful that buying cheap companies value, it has really very, very reliably produced excess returns. But that does not mean month in, month out. It does not mean year in, year out. And in fact, value has been a negative contributor performance for the last nine years Oh my. If you had if you had tilted towards value in your portfolio after the crisis, you would have underperformed. You wouldn't have lost money, but you would have underperformed the vanilla S and P 500. So the point is that although all of these things have been shown to work, they do not work uh, every year. And, yeah. so, and so and some of the marketing is oversimplified. There was one advertisement in the Financial Times for a particular smart beta product that I won't name, and it had in in font. Size fifty at the top. Wow. It, it had a number like three point five percent, and then in font two at the absolute bottom of the ad, it said, "This is our back test over thirty years. You know, may not be achieved. Had never been achieved. Had never been. Achieved. It was. It was a back test. And so I do." I do fear that there, there are risks of what people call data mining. Yes. There are risks of, uh, of oversimplification. There are risks of uh, luring investors into thinking that these things will perform every single year. And that's highly unlikely to be the case. One of the reasons these multi-factor products are useful is because they create a diversified portfolio of factors for you. So in any one year, I have no idea and no one knows if value is going to be a positive or a negative contributor in the next year. But when you compare value and quality and momentum and low volatility, all of a sudden you actually start getting a very interesting mixture of diversified sources of returns that are likely to produce a, small, a smaller, but more reliable positive return year in year out.
0: Less risky, more reliable long term. Uh, okay, so, so I use always, when I first heard of this topic I, I, I said to myself, is this really just smart marketing? not smart beta, but to, to some extent you've convinced me that there is an important benefit uh, to move away from the dumbness of a market cap weighted index. That the market cap weighted index, as simple and beautiful as it is, is flawed in certain scenarios. In bubbles, it's flawed. In busts, it's flawed and it leads you to not actually take into account of some of the data that we have. We have data on these companies. We know whether they're good. We know whether they're making cash flows. Why don't we embrace that data use that data to make it an even better index? So to me, it sounds like Smart Beta is a really, really great step in that direction. And with that in mind, we don't cover it at, at Stock Fair as, a, as, as an asset class for people to look at, though we probably should. Um, so, where should people look for information on this?
1: So I would go to the websites of a handful of the ETF providers and and, and to be clear you can buy smart beta in mutual funds and other formats but, but ETFs are the easiest way to buy it. Um, and I would go to the websites of somebody like an iShares yeah. and someone like a PowerShares, Invesco okay. PowerShares. They're two of the market leaders, they've been there from the early days and their websites are just packed full of useful information. What I particularly like about the iShares website is it it, it phrases Smart Beta through the prism of what you want to achieve. So they say, if you want to focus on more returns, look at these ones. If income is your thing, look at these ones. Uh, if, If risk is your thing, look at our low volatility products. And so they help you to think about what do you want to achieve from Smart Beta, and then they point you to the products, and then they also give you some really nice research. iShares often works with MSCI, the index house, and you also find the MSCI research on their website. So there's just there's a treasure trove of stuff to read, and it can be as technical as you like or as user-friendly as you like. And, and, and again, one of the things I love about Smart Beta is the exact same product can be discussed in an incredibly technical way with, with one guy, and the next guy can look at it and go, oh, okay, that just takes dividends, high-dividend stocks in the s that's nice and simple. He does not need to understand the 40 years of academic research behind that. But if you want to, it's there. And PowerShares has recently, um, um, they got Cass Business School over here to write four papers for them, starting from the academic background all the way up to implementation and due diligence. How do you exploit Smart Beta? And between those two websites, I think you'll learn so much. And then at that point, you decide, oh, I want to buy a low volatility product. Google is your friend at that point. Yeah. You will come up and you will find there's 10 different low volatility products out there. And... It's not, it's not unachievable to compare those in a sensible way and decide which of them does a better job for you. Uh, and hopefully at some point, uh, my book will come out to market. And my book is all about trying to make this accessible and it's focused on practical, uh, practical use of smart beta to help you achieve your investment objectives.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it in print and I'll be one of your first uh, buyers. So thank you very much for joining us again on this uh, podcast and really appreciate the insight into the amazing world of Smart beta. And Many thank,
1: thanks. You. thank you, Shane. Bye-bye.